Our reading today is Hebrews chapter 2. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. And uh, good evening, let me have my welcome. My name is Matt Foot. It's lovely to, uh, to see you uh, or um, to welcome you if we've not met. You're very welcome indeed. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Father, your call is to, uh, to us to pay ever more careful attention uh, to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, his word about his work. So please, would we do that now? Would you so be at work within us that we understand these truths rightly, but we cling to them, cling to them and are shaped by them for our good, for the honor of your name. Amen. Now, the book of Hebrews, we've been saying, is written to a group of people for whom life is hard. Life is hard for them. Uh, so particularly clear in chapter 10, these are a group of people who some have been imprisoned, they've been persecuted, some have had possessions taken. Life is hard for them. And in part, they seem to be asking, why is life so hard? And if this is the way it is, we're out of here. We're leaving Christianity and we're going back to a state-sponsored religion, some form of Judaism, which means we'll be safe from persecution. Why is life so hard for us, they ask. And that's not hard to ask in the contemporary world. Uh, you know, just in the prayers we've had, uh, prayed uh, for Nairobi. A horrible situation there. Syria. Christians in Pakistan. 
Why is life so hard? And this text is uh, particularly strong in answering that, I think. The book of Hebrews, then, is described as a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement to those having a hard time. Why don't we soar on wings like eagles all the time? Why sometimes is life a little less eagle-soaring-like and a little more plod-earthbound-like? Why is my boss so unreasonable? Why are my colleagues so nasty? Why am I such a muppet sometimes and make so many mistakes? Why these things? Why is life quite so hard? And the whole of the book of Hebrews is, is essentially a call just to look up. To look up. And see the Lord Jesus Christ. What he has done. Where he will take you. Keep looking up at him. Now, the issue, why is life hard, is very much uh, one very much raised uh, in this passage then, um, uh, right from the very off. The writer uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 6 and 7, he's quoting Psalm 8. And uh, Psalm 8 is a glorious psalm, if you've never read it. It's magnificent. It was read a couple of weeks ago, and um, we'll have more about it then. But a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 8, the psalmist speaks of mankind in these soaring, glorious terms. God, what is man that you're mindful of him? The Son of Man, you care for him. Why do you give such a wonderful position to mankind, Lord? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. Wow! What a privilege to be part of mankind, says the writer of Psalm 8. And the writer of Hebrews says, Yeah, yeah. Um, Not feeling that right now, are we? Not quite so magnificent. And the writer says, now you look at Jesus Christ. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that's not subject to him. Yet at present, it's not quite that way. Crowned with glory and honor, everything under our feet doesn't often feel that way. Right here and now. I control little in my world. We have a tiny yard outside our house. A very small yard. It's got some plants. They can't be hard to make grow. There's only a few of them. I can do nothing. One, this one in particular, um, this jasmine thing, I, I can't. It's meant to flower every year. It just it, it does green. It's good at green. Green just grows and grows. Flowers, never. I've taken out to, um, you know, we've got our iPad, Royal Horticultural Society. And uh, don't, gardening is the new rock and roll, if you didn't know. And um, <laughs> I'm watching these videos on the website of the, and as I snip with my secateurs, trying to work out nothing. I can't get it to grow. I can't even control my plant. And yet I go away on holiday and green, 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 and it sort of gets into the wall and rips the wall down and takes bricks out of the wall. Control. Crowned with glory and honor, everything under my feet. It doesn't feel like that, is it? If you hear on Wednesday night, you heard Richard Broadbent give his testimony and say, three years of PhD research, all flawed, all wasted. Probably not in the end. But uh, the moment in time, probably three years. It doesn't feel like we're in control of all things. The writer of the Hebrews gets that. So how do we make sense of Psalm 8? Looks a bit like a joke talking of humanity at the moment. To which the writer replies, look up. Look up. And see these things. See the man crowned with glory. 
the pioneer bringing sons to glory, and the brother helping us in temptation. Those are not just three parallel things, there's a logic. Uh, one leads to the next, leads to the next, and we'll work through them as we go through. Let's have a look at these then. Uh, first then, there's the man crowned with glory, verses uh, 5 to 9. Now the author of Hebrews is very clear, Jesus Christ is the man, the man who rules over creation, crowned with glory and honour, and he does so on our behalf, verse 8. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is subject to him. At present, we don't see everything subject to Jesus, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honour. That's what took place when he was ascend- when he ascended and sat down at God's right hand. Now, there's still some questions. Question. If God reigns, sorry, if Jesus Christ is sat at God's right hand, reigning over this creation, still why is that not more obvious? I take it there's some here sat tonight who call themselves Christians, so well, that's not obvious. It's really not obvious. That's a reasonable question. A lurking one, hanging over from last week if you were here, there's some in that time are obsessed with angels. And I guess another lurking question is, if Jesus became a man, isn't he less impressive than angels? If he's made lower than them? That may, may not be your question, it's certainly one lurking from last week. But overall, the big question still remains, if Jesus is in control and reigning in heaven, why is this world so screwed up? Reasonable question to ask. And the answer is, we don't see everything yet. So end of verse 8, at present, we don't see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus. We do see the truth of him. We see that he, God the Son, descended from heaven, lived on this planet as a man, suffered, died, rose again. We see that. And that is the guarantee of what will take place. You can see that that has happened to him. And therefore he is the one who fulfills Psalm 8. So the argument begins here. Life tough? Well, it was for Jesus. It's tough for him. He was humiliated, becoming a man, died. But then things got better, if I can put it in such trite terms. He rose again and ascended to God's ha- uh, right hand on high. So life tough? What it was for him. See the man. He's the one who fulfills Psalm 8. Okay? That's block one in the argument. Block two. He is the pioneer. The pioneer bringing sons to glory. Jesus is not simply impressive, but he'll take us to be with him in glory. Uh, over some holidays we went and visited some friends uh, down in South Cornwall. And the dad is a sort of Iron Man. I, don't think, I, just, I find that mildly intimidating, even in people I know. But he is an Iron Man, and, um, you know, so he does the, the running, the swimming, the cycling for miles, etc., etc. And so he lives right on the coast in Cornwall, so every morning he'll be up and do, you know, whatever it is, a five-mile run, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Uh, he's a super fit guy, uh, but also a very nice man, doesn't brag about it, etc., et so that's okay. Um, now, when we were with them, uh, we went for a nice coastal walk, up, down, up, down. Uh, they've got three kids, the youngest of them is four. Now, at some point in that walk, I don't know what it was, half an hour in or 40 minutes in or something, the four-year-old Tristan said, I've had enough, and sat down. <laughs> now, at that point for a four-year-old, having an impressive daddy 
who strides away across the horizon, manfully charging up the slopes, is nice, but not that useful to you. You don't just want an impressive dad who strides off. So of course Tristan sat down and said, Daddy, help. Iron Man comes along, whips up four-year-old, puts four-year-old on shoulders, and marches off at great pace. I try to keep up with him, and uh, Tristan, the four-year-old, looks down upon me. It's amazing how condescending it was for a four-year-old, and said, my daddy is strong. My eight-year-old looked at me, and I said, I'm not that strong. But when Tristan looks down and says, my daddy is strong, you know what he's saying. He's not just saying, my daddy is strong. He's saying, my daddy is strong for me. My daddy's strength benefits me. I don't care if he just strides off and leaves me here in the mud. Well, I would care. But that's no you good to me if he strides off and leaves me here in the mud. But when he picks me up, he is strong for me. Ah, that's good. And that's the point here. Jesus Christ is not just the man crowned with glory. He's the pioneer who takes us to glory. That's what's being emphasized. So verse 10, uh, it's missed out in this translation, but a little connection. Four connects these verses together. Four in bringing many sons to glory. And on it goes. Now, I guess the main definition here or description is that Jesus, verse 10, is the author of salvation, made perfect through suffering. Uh, author, literally Greek, uh, archipos, the um, archetype is where we get that word uh, from it. Um, author is a fairly good description for that, as in source of salvation. So J.K. Rowling is the author of Harry Potter. She is the source of Harry Potter. He has no existence apart from her. He cannot appear or came from her imagination. She is the author, source of. And that's True and entirely reasonable to translate it that way. He is the author of our salvation. But in context, I didn't pioneer as a better word. Because he is leading or bringing or taking sons to glory. So perhaps the closer picture is of uh, a gang rock climbing. Very sheer face. Um, And uh, the leader is the key man. He's the pioneer. He's got a rope attached to him. The rope is attached to everyone else. If he makes it to the top and ties the rope on, pit on or whatever it is at the top so it's fixed and secure, the others are safe. Doesn't matter if they stumble. Doesn't matter if they fall. Doesn't matter if they let go. It hurts, but the rope will hold them. And they'll actually they'll climb back on and get up. If the pioneer makes it to the top, the security of all the others is secured. Um, okay, that's the point here. Jesus is the pioneer. He is the man who's gone to glory. He will bring many other sons and daughters to glory with him. That's the picture. Let's just work through it uh, a little bit more in the in the, uh, the detail. I guess the logic of verse 10 is that Jesus is perfect, so he perfects us. Let's read it, verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting for that God... Father, in this context, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of the salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, like you and me, are of the same family. Now what does verse 10 mean? That Jesus was made 
perfect. We need to be very clear. There's nothing imperfect about Jesus at any stage. But he is perfected in his role as saviour. So you could think of it this way. Uh, you're a boss at work and you advertise a job. And 20 people apply. And in many ways their CVs are quite similar. None have failed an exam. None have had unauthorised absence. None have ever been in trouble with the police. They're all perfect. That is, they're flawless as they apply. But one that stands out. One has got loads of experience, incredible references through the work he's done before. And so you read through all these CVs and think, well, before I've even interviewed anyone, this, whatever it is, this woman is perfect for the job. This one is perfect. And it's that sense we're talking about here. Jesus always sinless. Nothing wrong, nothing that needs to be refined. But he's perfected through suffering. That is, as he endured suffering in this world, and ultimately upon the cross, he was tempted to disobey, tempted to complain, moan against his father, but didn't. And having endured that suffering and temptation, he's perfect to be a substitute for you and me and represent us. In that sense, uh, he's perfect. And therefore, verse 11, he can make us holy, holy or perfect us. That's not a progressive sort of comment, that's a position. Holy, in particularly in the book of Hebrews, it's a binary thing. You're holy or perfect or defiled. You're one or the other. So if you're a Christian, you are perfect in Hebrews language. You are holy. Can't get any more so. Maturity, as the writer will say in chapter 4, oh yeah, we can all grow in that. You get the difference? So, illustration, my son is my son. He can't get any more sonly. His sonship is what it is. He is my son. Can he mature? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, he's eight. Toilet humour? Everywhere. Most wonderful thing. And he needs to mature. If that's a word for you, feel free to take it. The, um, he can mature, but he can't become any more sunly. Christians can mature, they can't become any more holy in the language of Hebrews. We are perfect. Jesus is perfect, he perfects us. It's a status. Now, what's the consequence of that? Well, the consequence is verse 11. He's not ashamed to call you and me brothers and sisters. And the culture of the time, which is much more an honor-shame culture than we are in the West, much more uh, similar to a Japanese sort of culture, I guess, in in the modern world, um, to be invited to join a family is a big deal. It is a very beautiful picture, isn't it, here, of Psalm 22. Jesus says, I will declare your name, Father, to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I'll sing your praises. Isn't that lovely? You and I might, might conceive of heaven, of being in glory, and we sing to Jesus Christ, how wonderful you are, and great. But at some point you'll say, shh, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing how wonderful the Father is. Listen to this. I reckon he's got a good voice. Beautiful. And... Uh, in Isaiah 8 language, you and I, we are given, we are the reward for Jesus Christ. 
And you get further clarification of what's going on. Again, big idea. Jesus, the perfect man taken to glory, leading us, our pioneer taking us there. You get further clarification of how that works in 14 and 15. Uh, so let's read those. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And the comment here is that the great weapon that the devil, the Bible assumes that there is a malevolent supernatural being called the devil, the great weapon that, that he holds over you and I is death and acutely the fear of death. Now many in the modern world, of course we, we hear something like that and say, oh, that's the thing I hate about religion, that sort of stuff. We don't fear death anymore. Really? People don't talk about it. People may ignore or oppress any fear of death, but don't fear it. There's a intriguing article uh, over the summer uh, in The Spectator um, talking about the rise of the Death Cafe movement. I don't know if you've been to Death Cafe. Uh, it's not like Cafe Nero. You don't get a loyalty card the more you die. The, um, but it is a place, and there are a number all over the uh, UK. You can get, normally held in hospitals. There's one in London, guys, I think it is. Um, you can go and talk about death. So if a loved one has died, you can go and talk about it there. Or if you know you're about to die, you go and talk about it. And the concept being people are becoming sick through anxiety, loved ones dying, what do you do in today's culture? You can't talk to anyone. And so they set these things up as a sort of arena, a forum. And so uh, the writer of this article went along and uh, had a look uh, and um, had a coffee and a cake at one of these death cafes, and he said it was of some use. But he put this, he, here was his comment. And we got it uh, up there as well. He talks about condolence cards and how do, you, how do you write a card to someone who's died? Oh, so you don't do that. But to a, to a loved one, sorry, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to, I'm not, it's not funny. But to, to someone who's lost a loved one, it's a very hard card to write. I'm sorry about the death, passed away, He's talking about that and says, deep down we're troubled by condolence cards. Not because of social awkwardness, but because every death is a reminder that one day it'll be our turn. Hardwired into us is a difficulty with accepting our own mortality. Superficially, or logic and reason. And our subconscious is fighting. They don't talk about different ways. Some do it through plastic surgery. Some do it through relentless holiday. We're just fighting against the idea that we'll die. Well, the fear of death is very real. Now, what has Jesus done about that? Well, do you get the picture of verse 14? God became a man, Jesus, uh, the man Jesus Christ. He shared in this humanity, our flesh and blood, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That's the devil. Do you see the picture? The picture is this. You and I fear death. It is, is, is as if the devil has a gun pointing at you and me. Jesus comes along, bonks him on the head, takes his gun, throws it in the river and says, now what you got? You got nothing. So we don't need to be scared anymore. That's the sort of picture of verse 14. Now, if you're a Christian, you do need to know that. What have you got to be frightened of? 
I take it, in conversations I've had with people, dying can be very unpleasant. But death itself, there's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear about death. Don't fear, says the writer. Jesus died to free us from death. And so verse 16 brings us back to the, the sort of big idea that he's dying all the time. For surely it's not angels he helps, Jesus, but Abraham's descendants, flesh and blood, people who trust in him. Now helps is a slightly weak verb, if you forgive me for saying so there. Literally, it is not angels he takes by the hand. That's how it gets translated later in the book, chapter 8, verse 9. Uh, God took Israel by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And that's a helpful, more helpful picture. I don't know why it doesn't get translated that way, but it's good, isn't it? It's helpful to hear that. Difference matters. Imagine you're in a, uh, a, a, a highly foreign city to you. I don't know, Moscow for some, or Beijing for others, when the alphabet means nothing, you can understand no signs, and it's somewhat bewildering, and you get plonked down in the middle, and you're a bit lost and bewildered. You finally find someone who speaks some English, and you say, can you tell me the way to the museum? railway station, whatever, railway station, and they say, yes, you go over these lights, turn left, turn right, turn right, turn left, over those lights, and then you'll see it in front of you, you just need to go under the tunnel, over the bridge, and then you'll be there once you've turned left three times. And you say, can you say that again, please? And they say, oh, you're going to get lost, aren't you? And they say, come with me. And they take you by the hand, and they come with me, and they walk with you by the hand. Now, at that moment, you feel a mix of things. You feel a slight embarrassment, because some stranger's just holding you by the hand, and if, it's a bit odd, and you're not used to that. If you're a bloke, and he's a bloke, it doesn't really work in the UK quite so well. You feel a bit anxious about that. But they take you by the hand, but your relief, ah, oh, I'm not going to get lost. And that's the picture. The picture is Jesus takes you by the hand and says, look, you need me to save you. You won't get there on your own. I know it's a bit embarrassing to admit you need my help, but come on, I'll get you there. He's the one who helps. He's the pioneer that we need. So the man crowned with glory is the pioneer who brings sons to glory. And so finally, what it ends is, he's the brother who helps us in temptation. So here's the conclusion of the whole argument, verse 17. For this reason, he had, Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and high priest, and so on. Now notice here the parallel with verse 14. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. We're humans, Jesus became a human. Verse 17, we're humans, Jesus became a human. Okay, do you see the parallel there? And so verse 14, God became a human in the man Jesus Christ to destroy the devil, who has the power of death. Verse 17, God became a human. Why? In order that he might be a high priest and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So here's the detail that was lacking. How is it that we lose that the fear of death is removed from us? Verse 14, God became a man to remove the fear of death. Verse 17, God became a man to make atonement for our sins. Do you see how it works? The fear of death is removed when you know that your sin is paid for. And the centre chapters of the book of Hebrews are all about that. We'll get to that in time. The conclusion, well that's verse 18. 
Because he, Jesus, he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Question. What the author wants you to do is realize how much Jesus has entered your world and identified with you. He's saying, do you see that Jesus became a man, a human like you? That he suffered temptation like you? That he felt the pain and the frustration of this world like you? Do you see that? Because if you do, and you see him ascended in glory, that will help you keep going. And that will help you in temptation. Now in context, I don't think he just means temptation in general. Uh, we get to that in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 15. And we, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way, and I take it that means, yes, he, Jesus was tempted with anger and greed and whatever it may be. Here, here I think the emphasis has got to fall upon his temptation to reject his father or criticize his father. The emphasis falls in this section upon Jesus' suffering being the source for his temptation. Verse 18, because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I find that very encouraging. When Jesus was enduring frustration, rejection, pain, death, he was tempted to give up. But he didn't. Not once did he sin. Which means, I think, for you and me, when we're tempted to uh, to perhaps doubt God's goodness, and you know, we sit there and think, how can you let this happen? How can you let this happen to me? How can you let this happen in the world? When you're tempted to doubt God's goodness, Jesus was, but he obeyed for you. When you're tempted to doubt God's existence, could you be there? Could a God be there when the world is like this? Jesus was tempted to doubt, but he didn't. He always trusted and obeyed. When you're tempted to doubt God's fairness, why me? Why does it fall upon me? Jesus was tempted. But he didn't doubt. He always obeyed for you and for me. When you're tempted to resent the living God, there's something in your heart. You may not vocalize it, but you think to yourself, you're mean. You don't give me the good thing I want. You're a mean God to me sometimes. When you're tempted to resent him, so was Jesus. He was tempted during his suffering. But he always obeyed. And he always trusted. For you. And for me. In our place. The man crowned with glory is the pioneer who will take us to glory. And so even here and now, he is the brother helping us in temptation. He's able to help you. And so look, when life is unfair and unreasonable and unpleasant, see the man. 
See the man crowned with glory who's gone ahead of you to heaven. And trust him. Trust him. As chapter 3, verse 1 puts it, Therefore, fix your thoughts on Jesus. All of us will be tempted to think there's at different times. Actually, be we Christian or not Christian, this life's rubbish, this life's unfair. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. He knew that. He endured that in you and me, but he obeyed. He's at God's right hand in heaven. He'll take us by the hand to be there. Fix your eyes on him. Let's pray again. Our loving Father, you know the temptations that we face, even here and now, to doubt you, to doubt your kindness, to doubt your love for us, to doubt your just rule over this world. We don't see this world subjected to you, and we don't feel crowned with glory and honor. But we thank you that we can see Jesus, who's gone ahead of us, who'll take us there, so when we're tempted, would we look up and trust him for our good and the honour of your name. Amen.